0: Well, good morning, everybody. I hope y'all have had a wonderful week. I'm enjoying the fall weather and the cooler temperatures. Uh, I'm sure you guys are too, but um, Aaron asked me to fill in for him today. So I, I hope that God can use me to show you just some of the depths of this passage and of his word um, today. Um, but before I get started, I do want to give a little credit. I, I read a lot of commentaries and a lot of um, uh, uh, thoughts on, these, on this passage you know, while preparing. And a lot of, uh, of what I have uh, seen was from John Piper. So I just want to just kind of give him credit up front, and I'll quote him a couple times uh, throughout, the, throughout the talk. So um, today we're going to look at Ephesians 4, uh, the end of the chapter, verses 25 through 32. Um, this is a very practical section. It's a very applicable section. Um, it kind of flows out of the theology and, and doctrine and thoughts that Paul had expounded on in the previous uh, verses that we heard about the last couple of weeks. So have you guys ever read like a self-help book? You know, bookstores are full of them, right? They're, they're filled to the brim with any topic you want to think about, about self-help, any topic you want to find. Some of them are probably helpful. I think some of them are downright dangerous. Um, you know, a lot of these secular authors try to teach people how to live and how to, quote, better their lives without any foundation of truth. Uh, So people who know no different, you know, seek out these books to try to become better people. Unfortunately, as we heard about last week, they're still wearing that old uniform of the old self. The only real way to self-help is to put on the new self in Jesus. Paul will tell us in these coming verses some of what it looks like to put on that new self. Consider this a help section for Christians. I won't say a self-help section, because as we will see, the power to transform our lives in this way certainly does not come from within our own strength. So I'm going to read the first part of our passage. Uh, I'll start in verse 25 and read uh, through 29. So Paul says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Lord, we just thank you for your word, for the truths in your word, God, and we thank you for uh, the power to follow uh, these commands that, that comes from you, God. I pray that you will use me uh, to speak the truth of your word, to show these students uh, how to put on the new self uh, practically, and we just thank you uh, for, for, for doing that through me, through your spirit, Lord. It's in your name we pray, amen. So Paul starts the passage with, Therefore. You know, as you've probably all heard many times, when when that word's there, we should ask, what's it there for, right? In this case, I think it helps us to understand how we can live the kind of life that Paul's calling us to live in these next few verses. I think it refers mainly back to verses 22 through 24, which Aaron talked about last week. Those verses say, but that is not the way you learned Christ. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So so since we've put away the old self and put on the new self, we can put away falsehood. We can no longer steal. We can not let the sun go down on our anger. So Paul specifically has four examples of the old self versus the new self, negatives to get rid of, and positives to embrace. So we'll start with the first one that he lists here. He says, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So Paul tells us our motivation here to speak the truth is specifically because we're members of the same body. So this command is specifically about speaking truth to fellow believers, but I think you'll see it certainly applies and extends to our behavior towards non-believers as well. And that's actually something we can think about as I go through this, this talk, is how this applies to believers versus, uh, versus uh, unbelievers. So Paul says we should always speak truth. Paul's used this image of the body over and over again throughout Ephesians, and honestly in lots of his other writings as well. Uh, for example, in Romans, uh, he says very similar things. It's 12, 4 through 5, he says, for as, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So would your right hand tell your left hand lies? Would the hands get mad at the stomach because it gets to keep all the food and stop bringing food to the mouth? Well, that would be silly, right? The whole body would die. So in the same way, if we're lying to our brothers and sisters in Christ or telling untruths or withholding, we're harming the body of Christ. So that's that's what Paul tells us is our motivation for not speaking lies to our fellow believers. So, I mean, truth is so important. It it really can't be overstated. You know, I think Paul tells us why in verse 21, which is just before our, our, our passage, but he says the truth is in Jesus. If we are in Jesus and the truth is in Jesus, we must value truth. We can't spin it, we can't exaggerate it, we can't cover it up, we can't hide it. We must value it. So lying in general just damages our witness to others. It, it damages our relationships in big ways. Once trust is broken by telling lies, it's so difficult to repair that damage. I mean, this goes with your friends, it goes with your teachers, it goes with coworkers, it goes with teammates. It goes to fellow members of this youth group. It goes to church members. This, this, just, this speaking truth applies everywhere. So I want you to think back about a time that you've been lied to by someone you trusted previously. We've all had that happen, you know. So I want you to think about that, how you felt about the person that told you that lie. Consider how you felt about them before they broke your trust. And now I want you to consider how you felt about them after you discovered the lie. Can you trust them again? Can that relationship be salvaged? It is so much harder to restore trust once lost than it is to build it up in the first place. I would be wrong though, not to remind you that damaged relationships are fixable through forgiveness and restoration, but avoiding that damage in the first place is a much better option because rebuilding these relationships is an intensive, humbling, and difficult process. You know, I'm sure you've seen it with your parents. You know, they trust you until, they give you, until you give them a reason not to trust you sometimes. And once that, that has occurred, gaining that trust back is even more, more difficult. So in summary, regarding speaking the truth, I think Jesus sums it up really well in Matthew five thirty-seven. Jesus said, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. So Jesus is saying, don't spin it. Say the truth, speak the truth, and that's the end of it. So students, I want you to put off falsehoods and embrace the truth. So moving on, um, in verse 26, uh, Paul gives us a second command with some positives and negatives. He says to be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. So uh, in the first part of this, this verse, so, uh, Paul is actually quoting from Psalm, Psalms, Psalms 4.4, where it says, be angry and do not sin. So, so with this, is Paul telling us to be angry? I mean, is that, what he's, is that what he's saying here? What exactly is he trying to get across to us? So many commentators don't see this as what we would call an imperative command. So Paul's saying, we need to be angry. And I think that's absolutely correct because we'll see a little bit later in the chapter Paul tells us to put off anger. So why would he tell us to be angry and then not five verses later say we need to put off anger? So I think it's more of a, uh, a, a command as, as what we would see in a sentence like this. Eat that whole cake and you'll get a stomach ache. It's not really a command to eat that whole cake, but it's, it's more of a, if you do eat the whole cake, you're going to get that stomach ache. I think we've all been there, right? We've all had a little too much to eat at times. So Paul is saying, if you are angry, then do not sin. So, what does that look like? So, I think we need to talk about righteous anger and then unrighteous or sinful anger. So, righteous anger is not sinful. Jesus himself exhibited righteous anger, which you can read about in Mark 3 5 in one place, and there's some other, one or two other examples in the Gospels. But as an aside here, I think it's important. If you read through the whole Gospels, we see just a few examples of Jesus being righteously angry in the Bible. But when we compare that to the hundreds of examples of compassion, humility, love, and kindness, forgiveness, you know, I think that would be a great ratio to live our life by. You know, a couple episodes of anger, hundreds of examples of of humility and kindness and love and compassion. So, I think this is very intentional, but also historically accurate about Jesus. The disciples are showing us who Jesus is. What they are telling us is, we don't have an angry, vengeful savior. We have a humble savior, a gentle and lowly savior, a loving and kind savior, a compassionate savior. But let's get back to to talking about righteous and unrighteous anger. So there's many uh, verses about anger in the Bible. So righteous anger is slow to occur, as we see in James uh, chapter 1, 19 and 20, where he writes, let every person be slow to anger. But he also adds, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So righteous anger is also quick and brief. As Paul says in our passage, do not let the sun go down on your anger. That means if you're angry today, fix it before the end of the day. So if we hold on to anger, I think it turns into grudges and then subsequently into sin. It turns into being right rather than being righteous. It turns into being right rather than being holy. So righteous anger is simply being angry at what makes God angry for the same reasons God would be angry at it. Uh, Speaking of Piper, one of the things that, uh, a quote from him, he said, Our anger is righteous when we are angered over evil that profanes God's holiness and perverts his goodness. So not our goodness or our image or our person, but God's. So in contrast, let's, let's talk about what sinful anger or, un, or, or unrighteous anger looks like. So sinful anger is selfish. It's self-righteous. It's drawn out. It's ego-driven. It's destructive. It's deceitful. It's even cherished, held close because our sinful hearts don't want to let it go. You know we get so angry we can't even see straight it causes us to lash out at others it causes us to sin it causes us to hold these grudges if we go to bed over and over and over again with anger and grudges in our heart it leads to bitterness leads to destructive faults bad practices so there's a couple of good examples of this kind of sinful anger. I'll, I'll bring up one that you're probably fairly, fairly familiar with the first part of this um, narrative. So in the story of Jonah, so this is after he'd been swallowed by the whale, been you know, put up on land because he was fleeing. He didn't want to go you know, preach to the Ninevites. So this is after that point. Uh, Jonah actually became very angry at God. Jonah was angry at God for sparing the Ninevites because Jonah said they don't deserve sparing. They don't deserve an opportunity to repent. They need to be destroyed. So Jonah felt like he knew better than, than God. So, so he was angry there at God for sparing them. But later in the narrative, God actually made a plant grow up, a tree grow up to give shade to Jonah. You know, He's in the hot desert, and, and this plant grew up to give Jonah shade. And Jonah was pretty happy with that. But then God destroyed the plant with a worm, and the the bitter and angry Jonah became angry yet again. Jonah had held on to his anger so much that now he was angry at God himself over something as silly as a shade tree. He was angry even to the point where in in, uh, chapter 4, verse 9, he told God he was angry enough to die. So students, do you see how holding on to anger can cause us to do crazy and destructive things. Because Jonah had been continually angry, it led him to the point where he was whining to Almighty God, waiting to die because a worm had eaten his shade tree. I mean, that's what anger does to you if you hold on to it. So there's another interesting phrase, and I think it's important to note that that when we hold on to our anger, it opens an avenue for the devil to get a foothold in our lives. You know, Paul specifically added um, the, the, the phrase, do not give opportunity to the devil when he's speaking of anger. You know, we'll talk later in Ephesians about the armor of God. And I'm gonna go ahead and give you a little spoiler. There's no piece of armor made of anger. Okay? Anger is too dangerous. Even when righteous, it's too dangerous. So that's again why Paul says, give no opportunity to the devil when discussing anger. Instead, What we need to do is use the shield of faith to protect ourselves from the flaming darts of the devil and to prevent him from ever gaining a foothold into our lives. So I think we need to be honest with ourselves. Even when we are angry at things we should or could be righteously angry at, we often turn that into sinful anger. I would say that 99% of the time we get angry, it's rooted in sin, it's selfish, it's it's self-righteous. You know, the world around us loves anger. It gets clicks and views on social media. It gets eyes watching the newscasts. All it's there for is to fire people up to get them angry. The world is addicted to anger, and I think it shows. The world gets incensed at even the most minor of slights. There's no patience. There's so little love. The world is full of anger. We as a church, as a youth group, we must not be like the world. Guys, we can't be seen as an angry people. We must be seen as compassionate, forgiving, and kind. We need to be welcoming. The the loss will not be drawn in to Jesus if we are seen as an angry people. You know, on a personal note, this is not an easy command. You know, I've grown much more patient as I get older, although uh, Ethan and Kate might suggest otherwise. I'm I'm not sure. Um, But... (laughs) But as I've matured, you know, with the help of God, I've become less prone to bouts of anger. It still happens. You know, I still get my buttons pushed enough at work that that I lash out. I get angry. You know, it's required me to ask forgiveness of people affected by my anger. It's required me to stop and think before I act in anger. You know, remember, we just learned the Bible says to be slow to anger. It's really not easy. And unfortunately, until our sinful nature is finally and fully eradicated we will continue to struggle. But God has given us a spirit to convict us of our sinful anger and to help sanctify us to look more like Jesus. Um, so we'll move on to the third point uh, where Paul says that we should no longer steal, but, be doing, but do honest work. So the, the actual verse, I'll, I'll read it again, says in verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. I think we actually see several key points here. So not only does Paul say that we shouldn't steal, right, but he says we should do an honest work. And we should do this so we can, you know, buy a nice pair of shoes, get the latest video games, get a new phone, right? That's what Paul says, right? No, guys, that's not what he says, right? Paul tells us we should be doing an honest work so that we are able to share with anyone in need. You know, the world around us would have not in an agreement if we said we should work so that we can get everything we want. It becomes a little bit more difficult to, uh, to agree with when Paul says we should work so that we can share. You know, Paul is saying that this new self is marked by generosity, right? Generosity is the opposite of stealing. So stealing is selfish. Generosity is unselfish. Stealing is inward and self-serving generosity is outward in sharing. You know, stealing shows a lack um, of love towards others. Generosity shows an abundance of love towards others. Stealing shows a lack of contentment in God's provisions. Generosity shows full trust in God continuing to provide. You know, for many of us, the command to not steal is not necessarily the most difficult one to follow. But a command to be generous, even generous to the relative harm of ourselves, giving so it it hurts is a much more difficult command to keep. You know, I I think Paul is trying to show us here not that the new self is not just anti-stealing, but pro-generosity. You know, I think selfless giving is the mark of a true follower of Jesus. How can we do this? I think it's because our model for living is is Jesus. He gave it all. You know, Philippians two seven says that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. So how does this transformation occur from, from a thief to an honest laborer to a selfless giver? You know, I think it's by walking in a manner worthy of the calling that we have received, as, as Paul says in Ephesians 4.1. So in doing so, we have to find that contentment. That's a a key word that I mentioned earlier. No thief is going to be described as content, right? You're not stealing because you're content. No urge to take or steal or hoard or withhold comes from contentment. I'm going to quote to you the most misused verse in the Bible. It's Philippians 4, 13, but we're going to start in 11. So it says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in what." situation to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And here's 13 that you see on all the t-shirts without the previous two verses. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So the all things are being content when we're needy, or when we're abounding, when we're hungry, or when we're full. Paul's saying that by Christ who strengthens him, he can be content. And because of that, he has no need or want to steal or be ungenerous. The world will tell you it's about what you can get for yourself, to lay up all your treasures now, in plenty and often. Jesus tells the opposite. In Matthew 6.20, he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. So we lay up those treasures, students, by living for Jesus. We live for Jesus by being generous people, showing God's love to those in need around us. So the last of the four points um, that, that Paul goes through here, uh, is is corrupting talk. Um, So this is the last of of the four put on and put off commands that we've seen. So let's read verse 29 together. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So we all know from experience that words carry power. You know, they carry the power to save, the power to encourage, but they also carry the power to hurt, the power to break down. So Paul calls these words that are intended to harm or break down people, corrupting talk. We are told to let no talk like this come from our mouths, but instead to look to build up others. Again, the Bible has a lot to say about the tongue, about our speech. Uh, Psalms 34:13, for example, says, "Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit." Proverbs 15:4: "A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit." James says also in, in, in the book that carries his name, "No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison." James also points out that so also the tongue is a small member, just a small part of our body, right? Yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. The Bible has much more to say about our speech and the traps that we can fall into with evil and unkind speech. James used that little analogy of a fire to talk about the, uh, the power of the tongue. Uh, all it takes is just a small spark to destroy acres and acres of forest. I'll give you an interesting example. Um, my family was out in the West this, this summer, super dry. They'd had no rain for a long time. And we were driving through um, kind of rural Montana. The wind was just whipping, you know, the grass was about knee high and just golden brown. Um, and I thought to myself, I'm like, man, I'm, I'm glad there's no fires anywhere around here. Well, not that long after I had thought that to myself, I just noticed in the distance, this little puff of smoke. And I was like, man, that's kind of weird out here in the middle of nowhere. And we came around sort of a, a, a little, a small uh, hill, and I saw this forest fire, it was very small, right? It was, it was really no bigger than half of a football field, but we were in the middle of nowhere. Had no, I mean, there was nothing I could do about it. I didn't even have cell service. So I couldn't even call for help. So we drove on until I got cell service and I called 911 to report this, this fire that I said, oh, it was pretty small, you know, half a football field. Well, probably two hours later, we were driving on, and out there you can see for a really long way. And I happened to look behind me, and there's this huge cloud in an otherwise cloudless sky. And it was, it was actually a cloud because that fire had grown so big, it had made its own cloud, and you could see the smoke under that. So by the time we left a week later, that fire had burned almost 20,000 acres that's over 30 square miles, literally like half the size of Auburn. So from that little tiny spark that I saw when it was no no more than half a football field, it had grown. So the tongue is similar. All it takes is an evil word towards another person, and the fire's on. Right? There's, it's so hard to put it out. It it tears down your reputation it tears down your witness, right? And more importantly, I think it reflects poorly on God when we talk in a corrupting way to fellow believers. And, and, and guys, remember, we are ambassadors of God. Um, so I think it's also important to note that we're not just called to not use corrupting talk, but we're called to use our voice to build up others as fits the occasion. So you know, once again, we're talking about how we interact with believers here, with fellow Christians. So, And and building up someone in this case is to help someone grow in Christ-likeness in their faith. You know, I think you could think of a construction analogy where our words are like a piece of lumber, a piece of the wood. We only want to use good, wholesome, and strong lumber. You know, if you put rotten lumber or lumber with holes in it or corrupt lumber into a frame, your whole building can fall down, right? Our words should give grace to those who hear. Uh, Remember, students, grace is unmerited favor. It's undeserved. We we must not merely seek out people who deserve building up, who deserve to be grown in Christlikeness. But I think we must rely on God to give us the ability to speak encouragement, even to those who may not deserve it. However, this is not to say that we commend behavior that is sinful or not Christlike. Paul does say that we build up as fits the occasion. Encouraging sin would not be fitting to the occasion of promoting Christ-likeness. So put off this corrupting talk. We need to be in the business of encouraging and upbuilding and grace. Um, so, so from here, I'm going to read the rest of the chapter, and we'll, we'll hit the high points of that as we go. Um, so starting in, in verse 30, uh, Paul gives us an interesting phrase uh, that I won't have time to fully unpack, but he says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. Uh, so like I say, there's a lot in here. Uh, some of it's repetition from previously, um, some of it's new. We won't have... Time to cover it all here, but certainly we'll leave time for you to discuss it with your table groups. So first off, what does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit? Uh, This took some investigation because I was not really sure what it meant initially either. But you can think of to grieve as to cause someone to suffer. Um, One commentator said that our sins grieve the Holy Spirit because they are against his commands and represent a loss of deserved worship and glory that we are not giving God. So our sins are grievous. God can't tolerate them or overlook them, and they must be avenged. I mean, God is a holy God. He will avenge these sins. Thankfully, that wrath has already been poured out on our substitute, Jesus. If we put our faith in him, we are sealed. To that end, I find the, the end of verse 30 just incredibly encouraging. You know, he says, The Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So it it tells us that the Holy Spirit has sealed us. This is a guarantee by the sealer. And who is the sealer? It's God the Father through the Holy Spirit in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's a guarantee that we will make it to the finish line. We won't be left hanging. We will, if we have put our faith in Jesus, see the glorious victory that victory that's in Jesus, and we will worship him forever in heaven. That's the seal that the Holy Spirit has given us. And and students, that should be incredibly encouraging to you if you're a a follower of Jesus. You will see the finish line. We are promised by God, and God keeps his promises. Because again, if we think back, the truth is in Jesus. If God has told us, it will happen. Um, So Paul gives us a couple of lists at the end of this, which which are, are good for discussion as well. Um, he gives us a list of positives, and then he gives us—or I'm sorry—he starts with negatives. Then he gives us a list of positives. So in, in verse 31, he, he says to let some things be put away from us. Um, some of the translations are different. I, I thought the translation in the ESV was very interesting, and in, in that he says let this be put away. So he doesn't tell us to stop these things; like don't do them which is, you know, is, is the case, but instead he says, let it be put away. So these are not the same things. It, it's more of a passive command. So if we let our shoes be taken off, it's not us like physically removing them, but it's us allowing them to be removed. So in this case, I think Paul is telling us that the Holy Spirit, through the work of Christ in us, is removing these evils from us in a process that we call sanctification. It's not simply something we can do in our own power. So that's not to say we just sit by, do nothing at all and it happens. So uh, most of you won't, the parents in the room will appreciate this, but, but if you've ever tried to put on or take off the shoes of a toddler, you understand that there are things they can do to make your life easier or to make it much more difficult. So if they're kicking their feet or sprinting down the hall to get away from you, getting those shoes off is, is difficult. It's much more hard or it's, it's, it's much more difficult than if they're sitting quietly raising their legs, allowing you to untie the laces. So I think in the same way, students, we can posture ourselves towards God. We can be at peace and freely allowing God to work through us to remove our sinful nature and ways, or we can run screaming down the hall, and that sanctification process will not occur because we are not, we, we are not allowing things to be taken off of us. Um, Next, Paul gives us the last of these positive commands uh, at the end of the chapter. He says, "To be kind, be tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you." So this is the culmination of the Holy Spirit's work in us. These are the fruits of the spirit. This is what flows freely out of a healthy believer towards others. Um, you know, this is what we want to be known as as a youth group, as a church, as believers. In, in God. We want to be kind. We want to be tenderhearted. We want to be forgiven. We don't want to be seen as angry and hateful and spiteful. The, these are the commands that Paul is giving us here. Um, I want to leave you this, with this quote from John Piper. I, I just heard him say this in a, um, in a short talk on this, on this chapter, and to me it just speaks um, to verse 31 and 32 just, just so well. Uh, So John Piper said that the key to this tenderheartedness and the key to having these other things be put away from us is to be blown away at the core of our being so that we can scarcely stop jumping up and down with amazement that I am forgiven, that I am loved, that I am a child of God. If a person's heart is broken by that kind of grace and love, surely you can see why that would put away bitterness Wrath, anger, and clamor. You can't be amazed that you, a hell-deserving sinner, are forgiven and easily be angry and wrathful at other people. You just can't. I think that sums up those so well. If we are understanding that we are forgiven through Christ, then we can't be angry, we can't be bitter, we can't be full of wrath at other people, specifically believers. And that's my challenge for you today, uh, youth. As you discuss this, how can we be kind and tenderhearted and forgiving rather than be angry and bitter and full of wrath? That's the question of the day. And Paul's given us some practical advice on how that we can look like that. And it's through the power of God in you, working through you to sanctify you. Uh, Let's pray.